episode 150 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com. Hi, my name is Diane Dollar. I'm a helicopter and airplane pilot from Venice, California. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. Today's episode is with Diane Dollar. Diane is currently down in California flying helicopters, doing some pretty cool stuff. Uh, You should definitely follow her on Instagram if you don't already. She is one of my favorite follows. I was introduced to her via Kevin Cortez in an Instagram live or an AOPA live that we did for careers in aviation. And I just knew I had to get her on the podcast. And this podcast really shows how great her career and how great her path is. And she has just pretty much done everything. I mean, skydiving, helicopters, fixed wing, coast guard. She has done it all. And she has a lot of good information for you all and what you can do and the best route and how every route can change and you'll understand more when you listen. It is just a great podcast. I was really honored to have Diane on and then share her story. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. We just passed 600 reviews. Thank you all so much. Let's keep it going. 700, uh, 800, 1,000, whatever it may be. <laughs> Let's keep going and get some more reviews. Thank you all so much. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow us on Instagram. Check us out on Patreon. You'll see a video that I just uploaded there, and I'm dedicating 2021 to Patreon. You're going to get full video podcast. Uh, clips are going to go up on YouTube uh, and Instagram, but full video podcasts and other dedicated content just to Patreon. So check out Patreon. 2021 is going to be a big year for that community. And it just means a lot to me with all those Patreons and anyone supporting the podcast. Aviation Nation, I don't want to keep you guys any longer. I hope you all are having a great day. I hope you had a great Christmas. And without any further ado, here's Diane Dollar. Diane, what is going on? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. It's been a while since we talked last. We did the AOPA. I can't even, the Kevin might get mad at me. I can't remember what it was called. I think it was the career, was it the careers live stream <laughs> yeah, thing? <laughs> career day kind of a thing yes. for anybody interested in aviation. Yep. Yep. Awesome, that, was, yeah. that was fun. That was a good time. And that was pretty much the first time we've ever talked too. Like I, I don't even know if I, yeah, I think I did follow you before that, but that was like kind of like my first time I've ever met you. We've ever talked and we went on a live stream for like an hour. It was fun. Yeah, that was awesome. Oh, well, uh, sweet. Well, I'm glad to have you on the podcast. It's going to be a lot of fun to share your story. Uh, the first question I ask everyone is just why aviation? What was the original inspiration for you wanting to begin or even start a career in aviation? Oh, well, just, it's cool, right? (laughs) No, I mean, I I guess since I was a little girl, I was obsessed with aerospace in general. I wanted to be an astronaut since I was a little girl. You would see my room. It was just covered in um, everything's space. I had this big mural on my wall that showed me standing on the moon, looking down at the earth and space shuttle uh, border around my room. And I had uh, those little glow in the dark stars all over the place. And I actually like built my own space shuttle out of cardboard boxes. That was pretty dope. I have to say my, my engineering skills were pretty on point <laughs> back in the day. Uh, so I, I guess I had always been interested in it since I was, since I was young. Um, I didn't really get interested in helicopters until a little bit later on um, when I was in the Coast Guard 
And I was stationed up at a place called Station Cape Disappointment in Washington. That's the actual name and, of it? Or is that kind of like the joke name? actual name. What? <laughs> no. what? Yeah, could you imagine getting those orders in boot camp? They're like, you're going to Cape Disappointment, dollar. And I'm just standing there with my mouth open like, wait, wait, is this guy serious? <laughs> you're like, can we not go to disappointment? Like, that's not real. Too. <laughs> I'm good. Well, at first, told me I was going to a light ship in the middle of the Atlantic just to mess with me. And <laughs> I was like, I didn't even think we had light ships anymore. And um, <laughs> come to find out he was messing with me. So when he told me Cape Disappointment, I, you know, in my head, I was thinking he was messing with me again. I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're joshing. But uh, apparently, nope, it's a real place. Actually really sought after base. Um, very busy. You in the year that I was there, we had probably about 200 search and rescue cases in total. Um, so yeah, it was very, very busy there um, at the Columbia River Bar where the river meets the ocean. So the waters can get very treacherous there. And so I worked at a, a small boat station, a search and rescue station, but we worked with helicopters a lot um, on search and rescue cases. And I'm sitting down on this boat with like gale force winds and sideways rain and freezing my butt off on this boat. And we've been looking for this, uh, this guy for maybe three hours. We were out there and all of a sudden this help, this Jayhawk just like do, 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 right over our heads. They're like, we got it from here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> You're not needed anymore. And we'll see you. I just remember being on that boat, looking up and being like, Okay. <laughs> like if I'm going to do this type of work, I don't want to be the guy down here. I want to be the girl up there. Um, in that helicopter, it was just super, super cool. And uh, we always did helicopter operations where they would, we'd practice, you know, the lowering the basket down to us and we'd be running around like chickens with their head cut off, trying to not get hit by the static line that was <laughs> hanging down from the helicopter and to not get electrocuted. But, uh, yeah, so that was really cool. And I just saw the skill that the helicopter pilots had to have to do that job. I mean, it was just incredible. We were in 20 plus foot waves and these guys were hovering above us, you know, lowering down the, the baskets and having to make minor adjustments as the waves were picking us up and bringing us closer to the helicopter. And I, I just remember thinking to myself, wow, like these guys are legit skilled people. And I just fell in love with it. So from then on, I, I had the mission in my head that I wanted to be a Coast Guard helicopter pilot. But I had joined right after high school. I was 17. And I didn't have a college degree at the time. So uh, the Coast Guard, in order to be a helicopter pilot, you have to have a college degree to become an officer and then go to flight school. So that was the plan. I was going to go to school while I was enlisted and um, apply for uh, uh, to become an officer and then go to flight school after that. But as it were, uh, the Coast Guard had a huge budget cut when I was in and aviation was moving super slow. And even just to to maybe transfer over to become a, an aviation technician, it was a two-year wait, which was you know half of my enlistment at that time. And uh, it just didn't seem like it was going to be an easy path at all. If you would have gotten the either whatever to fly a helicopter or fixed wing in the Coast Guard, you probably would you would have another uh, time commitment there, correct? It's not like you probably signed up for what, five years or whatever it would be. And then if you wanted to go fly, you'd add another five on. Is that how it would have worked? 
Yeah. So if if you if they put you through flight school, you definitely have to commit um, a certain amount of years after. I can't exactly remember how many they would have asked for, but honestly, I mean, the Coast Guard aviators, they just have it made, you know, you live by the beach and <laughs> going out on these super cool missions and uh, flying some really awesome machines. So I don't think I would have, you know, minded so much. But Dude, you're always flying up, in bad weather, right? You're never flying on a beautiful day, I feel true. like. That's true. That is true. Uh, I do, um, I, I guess I would say, you know, I, I was pretty over being in the in the Coast Guard after my four years doing what job I ended up doing, which was to become, a, I was a mechanic, <laughs> a boat mechanic. Uh, yeah, not so much. <laughs> um, I threw my name on the quickest list to get out of the station that I was at, which ended up being very corrupt and um, as it were, the, my the president of the company that I work for now is just retired from the Coast Guard, and he was part of a task force that came in and cleaned up the station that I was at. Um, just ironically, yeah, just super strange. Um, so at the time, I was, uh, uh, it was not a healthy place to be, and I just wanted to get out of the station as fast as I could. So I found the quickest school list to get out of the station I was at and ended up be becoming a mechanic and going to Yorktown, Virginia. And, you know, it, it helped me in the long run because it really helped me have that mechanical background, which eventually really did help me understand systems, electrical systems, you know, uh, engines, turbine engines. Um, it really, really helped me because before that I, I was not mechanical. I didn't know anything about engines. So that was, um, Definitely something that gave me a little bit of a leg up when I did start my aviation career. So that's, you know, in that regard, it was a good thing. What was, um, so obviously that was your first kind of foray into systems, right? Becoming a mechanic. Um, I guess actually I want to take it even farther back before that. When sure. I'll, I'll ask that question later. Uh, when I want to ask a few questions about you growing up in aviation and kind of your, your love for it. Was that founded by family members? Did you have anyone that was in aviation or was it just kind of you and uh, having big dreams and thinking, man, that'd be really cool if I could be an astronaut, if I could fly, if I could do anything? Uh, actually, yeah, no, I don't have anybody in my family who's in it, who is in any sort of uh, facet of aviation at all. Um, yeah, it started when I was really, really young and I'm not exactly sure where the obsession stemmed from other than my parents always taking me to aerospace museums. And I just remember I was, it was a summer, I was five years old and they took me to this um, airspace museum in, um, I believe it was in Alabama. I'm not sure exactly which one it was, but I'm from, I'm from Georgia originally. Oh, nice. I'm from North Carolina, and, so not too far. Oh uh, yeah. Hey, hey neighbor. <laughs> South. Uh, so... They took me to this to this museum, and there was one of those interactive rides where you get into this seat, and it moves and it shakes, and it's like a movie theater, and it's you're taking off in a space shuttle, and then you get to visit all the planets and uh, go all the different places in space, and it teaches you all about it. But in my head, I actually thought that I went to space, like I was one hundred percent sure that I went to Jupiter, which was my favorite planet. How old like, were you when this was happening? It's the coolest. I was like five. Yeah, I, was just, I thought you were going to be like 18, you know? No, I was <laughs> I was 18. Six, this yeah. was last year. <laughs> yeah, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 
I just remember my heart got completely crushed by the end of summer. Um, anytime my parents' friends would ask me, like, oh, what'd you do this summer? I'm like, I went to Jupiter. Yeah. Like, like super Diane. excited. <laughs> Diane, you didn't actually go to Jupiter. <laughs> didn't actually go to Jupiter. And I'm just like, no, you were there. Like, what are you talking about? That's so funny. Yeah, that's you awesome. So, so I, I got obsessed from then on, I, I believe, kind of where it started. Yeah, I was going to say, so from then on, you've always wanted to go to Jupiter. It's a good thing Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos are kind of doing their space thing. Maybe you get a chance one day. Maybe. Yeah, that would put be. Put you on the list. Yeah. I'm true. <laughs> yeah. if, if we have any, if we have any hookups here, they'll try to hook you up. Me and Elon actually had a moment one time uh, across the ramp at Hawthorne. <laughs> oh, really? Now you have to explain. <laughs> I know. No, well, I was giving my passenger, I was doing a Coachella charters from Hawthorne down to Bermuda Dunes one year. I think it was back in 2018. And I was out on the ramp giving my passengers their safety briefing. And Elon uh, Jet was parked right next to where my helicopter was. And he was standing outside with his guys and I'm giving my people a safety briefing. And I swear to God, there was this moment where we looked at each other and it was like the whole world melted away. And we just had this like eye contact moment. And I'm like, oh, that's Elon Musk. <laughs> that's hilarious. You should have like doubled down and walked up to him and just like, screw it. Screw the passengers, whatever. You guys will understand. Like, Excuse we'll me, get guys. you to Coachella go five minutes late. Buddy. Mr. Musk, yeah, excuse Elon's me, sir. Calling. I'd like to go to Jupiter. Will you please send me there someday? <laughs> Sounds like a fair request. I think you'd say yes. I mean, I feel like I had a major missed opportunity there. Honestly, I regret it every day. Also, side note to the story, Bermuda Dunes is easily one of my least favorite airports in the whole world. I'm just going to throw that <laughs> out there and tell bad. everyone. It is awful. It's pretty bad. Like yeah, thermal, Palm Springs. What is the point of having Bermuda Dunes? Yeah, they're kind of, it doesn't really serve much of a purpose other than, you know, the winds actually change pretty drastically between thermal and Bermuda dunes. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but it was a lot different. We were, um, that weekend was probably the most turbulent and windy uh, weekend that I've ever flown in my entire career. I think at some points it was gusting 49 in some places. Uh, you know, going through the Banning Pass, I don't know if you've ever flown down through the Banning Pass uh, to get down there, but it's pretty gnarly, especially in a helicopter. Um, if you're light and, you know, uh, light on fuel or anything like that, we were getting tossed around pretty good, but... Yeah, I don't know if I've ever yeah. flown the Banning Pass. Uh, we always just fly IFR. So, I mean, we've gone kind of over the mountain and then coming back down we've always come from the south we've come from the north so we've come from like every way you can possibly come uh, i just don't know if it's called the banning pass or whatever just because they're like go to victor this this and that and this point and that point it's like all right thank you right no they're like hey um to get away from all the ifr traffic can you please hug the mountain as closely as you can and get all this up traps for you okay cool thanks as you're getting you bumped know, around can't even talk you're like i don't know if i can <laughs> Like sincerely, Palm Springs, Terza. Yeah. 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 Palm Springs can be a, a headache for sure. Uh, it gets windy there. Obviously, it gets really hot and it gets turbulent, especially around that mountain. We've I've had some really bad turbulence in that area. And it seems to be one of a, a place that we frequent a lot too. It's it's a beautiful place though. So I'm not mad about that. Yeah. <laughs> sure is. Um, 
when you were coming up, so you went to to airspace camp, or you went not airspace camp. Sorry, you went to was that a, that was just a museum, right? Well, I did go to air, well, I, I did go to space camp when I was a kid. Oh, no way. Well, I was gonna be my next question is what kind of what else kind of founded uh, your love for space and flying after the the camp or after the uh, museum? Yeah, that was um, I did go to space camp in 1994. I remember it was the year that the Olympics was were in Atlanta. And uh, I had to come up with a, a game, a game that you could play in space. And it was this big uh, contest. And I ended up winning. <laughs> it was some sort of a race in space where you had to jump from planet to planet. And you know, I was able to name all the planets in order and everything. Oh, poor Pluto. Um, <laughs> and so I won this contest. So I got to... You know, meet the mascot of the Olympics that year and all this stuff. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of funny. Um, I, I think after that, I just, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure where the fascination really took off. You know, I, I got into high school and, you know, a little too cool for school for that kind of geeky stuff. So, <laughs> I think I kind of grew out of it a little bit. I mean, I think the love for it was still there, but um, maybe not as as evident anymore. And then when I got out of high school and I joined the Coast Guard and I started working actually with aviation and working these search and rescue cases, that's when it really, really took off. So what was your mindset coming out of high school? Was it, uh, obviously you joined the Coast Guard, but was it uh, maybe college? Was it any branch of the military? Uh, you said that you weren't really focused on flying or even pursuing that really. So what was kind of Diane's mindset and what she wanted to do for her career or for her life? Diane's mindset was uh, I hated school. <laughs> I, I I couldn't imagine doing four years where I had to sit in a classroom and listen to a teacher. My, my senior year, I ended up homeschooling myself because I just did not like sitting in a classroom. I didn't handle it very well. Um, didn't learn very well that way. I did better if I was at home and I had books in front of me and I could kind of get through the material myself and with some you know helpful videos here and there. Um, I, I think the only thing I really struggled with was was math, uh, where I actually had a tutor come and help me with with that kind of stuff. But um, I was actually living on my own with my brother. We were 16. I was working two jobs. I was homeschooling myself. And um, that's kind of a little bit of a long story. It's not like my parents kicked us out or anything. <laughs> um, I was trying to figure out how I could ask a, a question about that. but <laughs> No, it was kind of a sweet deal. Um, I have a lot of adopted siblings. I have um, eight adopted siblings and it's me and my two biological sisters. And my brother Hugo and I, we're about six days apart. He's my um, adopted brother from Mexico. And at the time he was failing sophomore year of high school. I was about to graduate and my parents kind of resigned themselves to the fact that he wasn't going to graduate high school, but they didn't want to kick him out because, you know, obviously abandonment issues and everything, but they wanted him to have life experience and learn how to survive, you know, without a high school diploma, get a job, et cetera. So they asked me if I would move out with him and they would pay for our rent and we would just have to take care of our food and utilities and all of that good stuff. And they would help support us that way. Um, which, you know, and it ended up working out for us. And um, when 
it no longer worked out anymore. That was when I, um, I graduated high school and I was like, okay, what am I going to do next? Um, I don't want to go to college. I didn't particularly enjoy the people I went to high school with and I couldn't afford out-of-state tuition. So I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be another four years with these same people <laughs> uh, that I don't particularly care for. And I, and I also just had this like thing in the back of my head that was telling me I just needed to get out of Georgia. I needed to go on an adventure, needed to get out of there. And at the time, my best friend, uh, Yoshi, was going into the Marines, going back into the Marines. He used to be in the Navy, and then he um, decided to re-enlist. And so I wanted to go with him, a naive little 16-year-old guy. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm going to enlist in the Marines with Yoshi, and we're going to stay together forever, and we're going to get stationed in the same places. And my parents were like, no, that's not going to happen. You guys will not be able to stay together. And, you know... Uh, the only branch that we would sign for is the Coast Guard. And That's what your parents said? That's the only one that they would be okay with you going for? Right. You know, they they didn't want me to be deployed um, and go to war, et cetera. And they had to sign away, sign me away because I, I was 17 after I graduated high school. Um, so I, I didn't have the ability to sign myself up. So, But I, I'm super glad that they did. The Coast Guard was a really, really... Uh, amazing service and a and a great experience in the fact that I got to do a lot of different jobs. It wasn't just you know one job that I had to do. I wore a lot of hats when I was in the Coast Guard, so I got so much experience, and I honestly was a lot more comfortable with the mission. You know, all about saving lives and not taking them, <laughs> and that kind of set set a little bit better with me, anyways. And it just so happened that the Coast Guard recruiting station was uh, in the same little, um, I guess, uh, shopping area as like our regular grocery store. So I'd see it all the time. And they're like, you know, it's just, they're like beefed up lifeguards. Go check it out. So I, I went into the I've never recruiter heard that before. station. That's hilarious. Beefed up lifeguards. Yeah, beefed up lifeguards. Yeah. Just like Baywatch on steroids. <laughs> Exactly. So, you know, you go into the recruiter station and they just have like rescue swimmers jumping out of helicopters and they're like, this is what you're going to do. Like, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> so uh, when I got in there, I immediately just knew that's the path that I needed to take at the time. Um, so yeah, I signed up and about three months later, I was on my way to boot camp in Cape May, New Jersey. After you signed up, I'm guessing it was like a, a a really cool feeling right away. You're like, man, this is really cool. I'm gonna go go help serve my country through the Coast Guard. I'm gonna do some so many cool things. But like, say like a couple of weeks or even a couple of days. Did you have any regrets? Did you have any like, what the heck am I doing? Or are you like, oh, this is awesome the whole time. Um, I think the moment that I stepped off the bus at boot camp, uh, definitely a couple of things were going through my mind after someone came running on the bus yelling <laughs> for me to get my ass off the bus. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what did I what did I just get myself into? And unfortunately, I just had a target on my head uh, with the fact that I, my last name is Dollar. So that's, it's not like a Johnson or a Jones or a Davis where I get to fly under the radar, you know, like immediately they, you know, a, a name that stands out like that, uh, they, they had a target on me. And the, the first thing that they said to me, I'll never forget this because it was so funny. I started cracking up and I couldn't stop, uh, which did not help my case. <laughs> uh, 
the the company commander came up to me and he goes, Dollar, we're gonna make some sense out of you. <laughs> Do you think he was practicing that the whole time? And like a couple of weeks before, he's like, All right, dollar, we can make some good jokes. And that's the best that he could come up with before then. <laughs> Yeah, but it was pretty good because I had never heard one before. So I, you know, I'm, I'm have this straight face on, just terrified and like about to pee my pants, like thinking, what the hell am I doing here? And all of a sudden it was like, <laughs> I couldn't contain myself. And um, yeah, immediately just got the crap kicked out of me. And I, I think by the end of boot camp, they had dubbed me the most incentively trained person on the entire regiment. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah. I was in really good shape though. Like really, really good shape. What was, yeah. uh, what were your expectations going into boot camp? Like obviously people hear boot camp and they think it's going to be the hardest couple of weeks of your life. Uh, did it live up to those expectations or was it, was it more manageable than you thought? Um, it was definitely mentally challenging for, for me. I mean, it was physically challenging, but mostly it's a, it's a mental game. And for me, um, I ended up Usually boot camps eight weeks. I was there for ten weeks. <laughs> they had to make some extra sense uh, out of you. <laughs> they had to make some extra sense out of me. Apparently, you know, I wasn't so hot at it. But no, I, I really actually, it, it's hard because I don't want to say that they set me up for failure, but they kind of set me up for failure on a couple of occasions, and it was a very um, the the first time that they sent me back a week. It was them trying to teach me a lesson on what they called perception in the military and uh, they knew I didn't do anything wrong, but they wanted to teach me a lesson and that ended up costing my entire family so much money because they all had to change their plane tickets to come see me graduate, which was kind of, it was kind of a messed up kind of sexist situation that no matter how much I tried to crawl out of it, it just kept burying me under it more. And, um, yeah, so it's kind of unfortunate situations that happened, but, um, yeah, it did teach me a lot <laughs> to teach me a lot uh, because honestly, the lesson that they taught me was totally accurate um, in in the in the military in general when it comes to females who are being put in in certain positions. So, uh, yeah, um, expectations. I thought we were going to have to swim more, which <laughs> we actually didn't. <laughs> I, mean, I think a that's whole a movie with common. Ashton Kutcher, right? <laughs> All was a I swim. know. I think it's a pretty common. Um, I guess, misconception that like, oh, you were in the Coast Guard. I bet you had to swim a lot and in, in boot camp and everything. I think we only had one day that we had to do laps. But other than that, it was all just uh, PT outside with like these 12-pound Civil War rifles that we had to carry around. And uh, yeah, pretty, pretty interesting. What was... Um, so a lot of people understand more about kind of the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, the progression and where you get stationed and kind of the overall mission. And like you mm-hmm. said, people think Coast Guard, they probably just think swimming. They probably think helicopters that goes to save. But the majority of the Coast Guard probably doesn't become the, the swimmers or doesn't become the helicopter pilot. What is the majority of the mission of the Coast Guard? Kind of uh, the, the reason that they're there, I guess. Uh, just kind of, if you can, give a little spiel about it and kind of what everyone's supposed to do, if that makes sense. Sure. So um, after boot camp, I, I guess just depending on what job you want um, is whether or not you get stationed somewhere without a job. You're kind of what they call a non-rate, where you're just kind of the bitch of the station and you got to do all the stuff nobody wants to do, (laughs) Uh, lowest rank um, at the station. And then 
you put your name on a list to go to whatever school you want to go to. So the more sought after jobs in aviation or medical, um, usually were a pretty long wait where you would have to be a non-rate for up to two years before you would actually go to school to get your MOS, like to go, before you would go to A school was what they call it, advanced school. So if you're really dedicated to want to do a certain job and you're planning on being in for a long time, sure, a lot of people didn't mind you know, being a non-rate for a couple of years while they waited for the actual job that they wanted if they were planning on being a lifer or, you know, we're going to be in for more than the four years. But for me, I, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm only going to be in for my four years. It doesn't really make any sense for me to just be a non-rate and sit around for two years, especially at the station that I was at that was really corrupt. I just didn't think, uh, didn't, didn't think I could handle another year there. And um, so once you go to a school, then you get a job and then, you know, you, make a dream sheet where it says, you know, where do you want to get station, listing it from top to bottom location and specific stations. And then they kind of go off of that and see, you know, where um, they can put you. Um, which actually in boot camp, I had put on that I wanted to be on an icebreaker, uh, which would have been really cool because you get to travel around the world and you get to go to the South Pole and play with penguins. And, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to do. I was like, I don't, I didn't, I didn't want to stay put. I wanted to move around a lot. And another girl in my station put Cape Disappointment as her number one. A lot of people want to go there because they want to learn how to drive the boats in those crazy uh, surf conditions. Uh, and they ended up giving her the icebreaker and they gave me Cape Disappointment. I think that they accidentally mixed them up. No. And we tried to get it. Yeah, we tried to get them swapped, but they were like, oh, it's too late. It's like, what? That's, that's stupid. You know, That's why would you crazy. guys do that? That's um, so unfortunate. <laughs> it was really unfortunate. We're like, I was like, oh my God, you got the icebreaker. She's like, oh my God, you got Cape Disappointment. It's like, oh, can we just trade? Like, we're the same rank. We're both girls. Like, I don't understand why like they can't switch the billet. But yeah, just pretend you should have uh, just pretended you were her and just been like lived a fake or a fake life the rest of your life. <laughs> a double life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> is she still? Do you still stay in touch with her? Is she still in the Coast Guard? Does she like love it? And does she does she have a blast or did she get out too? Oh, I have no idea. We ended up losing touch after boot camp. It would have been um, interesting yeah, she, to follow up and see like if she's decided that she only wanted to be there four years. Now she decided to stay in and what could have been your life. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't even remember what her name was. Uh, it's been a really long time. It's Maybe she's listening time. to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really interesting. Doubtful. She's like, oh my God, that's me. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be so cool. Um, all right. So yeah, you did your dream list and you yep, unfortunately... did dream list. Oh, and... Oh yeah. So I, I went to Cape Disappointment. I was there for a year. And then, like I said, I put my name on the shortest list to get out of there. Three months later, I was um, in a school in Yorktown, Virginia to become a mechanic. Uh, I was there for a couple of months, became a, what they call a machinery technician and made my dream list. And I ended up getting stationed on a 110 foot patrol boat out of Miami, Florida. Um, which What's that? That's not a bad place to be stationed at all, right? Yeah, you know, it, it was a good station and um, it exposed me to a whole different side of the Coast Guard, right? Mo most of my, well, all of my experience in the service at that point was all search and rescue. And um, now we're talking about illegal immigration and, um, and drug interdiction. 
which, which in my opinion, it was search and rescue. Uh, for the most part, anytime we found illegal immigrants um, making the trip and picking them up, uh, it was a rescue mission. Uh, a lot of the times people were lost at sea. They didn't know where they were, ran out of food and water. And if we hadn't found them, it probably, you know, they probably wouldn't have made it. So um, for me, that was a humanitarian service, 100%. Do you have any stories that really stick out from your time in the Coast Guard, whether it is search and rescue or whether it's just that moment when you're like, why am I down on this boat and not in that helicopter? <laughs> um, I, I guess, mm, I mean, I, I have a lot of stories. There was one instance, and I, I don't know if there there wasn't a helicopter involved, but we actually had a helicopter hit their tail rotor on our mast one time when we got picked up by a big wave. And that was kind of dramatic. Uh, sparks flying everywhere. They ended up having to go do an emergency landing um, at our base, but everyone ended up being fine. Um, it was really good. and um, ended up being okay. Uh, that, that was pretty crazy. And that time I was like, okay, I'm really glad that I'm not up there. <laughs> down here. I'll, I'll stay down here. I'm good. I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, but there was one one case in particular. I actually wrote a short story about it. I'll send it to you at, at some point. Um, but I so I lived on base when I was at Cape Disappointment, and for some reason, like the speaker alarm in my room, like the volume was turned all the way down. And I don't know um, how that happened. It just like wasn't wasn't working very well. And I was on first boat, which is um, the first boat to be deployed in the event of a mayday call. So I'm trying to go to sleep. It's like 11 p.m. I'd been working all day on stuff and um, was having kind of a hard time falling asleep. And the alarm went off, but like, I don't know, I was kind of in this like in-between state. I didn't really hear it. I didn't hear it. didn't go off in my room. And this guy comes running to my room and banging on the door. He's like, Dollar, what are you doing? You're supposed to be on the boat. I'm like, wait, what? They're like, oh, there's a boat taking on water. You guys got to go. And I'm like, holy, <laughs> like, oh my God. Uh, so super, you know, wake up really fast, throwing all my gear like this. And we had a lot of gear because it's, you know, I think this was in October in the Northwest and it was already raining super hard, just like eye stinging rain and freezing cold. Um, so we had, uh, let's see, Under Armour, a fleece bunny suit. And then on top of that, a dry suit that had the rubber seals on the wrist and the neck that you feel like you're constantly being choked. And on top of that, like super big socks and like these big boots that we had to put on and then a life vest and then a search and rescue vest on top of that, that had all of our flares and our um, knives and and everything that we needed on there. So a lot of gear. <laughs> and so I'm throwing all this stuff on. He's driving me down to the, the docks where maybe like a little bit down the street from maybe like a quarter mile down the street from where the, we, where we slept and we run onto the boat they already had it started and we're getting out there and we're leaving the river bar or getting out into the river bar. And it was really calm at first. You know, the river was like maybe five feet, kind of building up to 10 feet. And I look over to this place called Clats of Spit, which is like where the biggest waves were when the conditions got really bad. And I look over there and it was like 30 plus breaking, like breaking surf. And at this point, you know, we have snowboarding goggles on too, because like the rain just gets in your eyes and you can't see anything. And we start going over these waves, and this is, you know, dark. It's the middle of the night. 
And on the Columbia River bar, the waves are coming from all directions. Like we have to station ourselves, um, one at the bow of the boat, one in the back, and call out wave size and what direction they're coming from to the coxswain so that he can maneuver the boat accordingly. Um, so it's always kind of really hectic to get out of the river bar. And um, so that was starting to get pretty gnarly. And we, we would be harnessed into the boat. We have to walk around the boat and clip in with these carabiners on these D-rings around the boat because uh, the 47-foot motor lifeboats that we were on could roll all the way over. So if the waves did knock us, it, we wouldn't capsize. It would just roll, rewrite itself, which was kind of a cool feature. But, you know, it's never a, a pleasant experience if that does happen. <laughs> yeah, it's good, but you don't want it to happen. You don't want to experience that, I'm guessing. You don't, you don't want to experience yeah. that. Um, <laughs> like, it's cool that the Sears has a parachute, but you never want to pull the parachute. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the mast breaks, people break their arms and like, you know, it's not, um, it's not a good thing, but you're not going to die. So that's always a plus. Um, so we're going out there and it turns out they weren't taking on water. They just ran out of gas, but they were about 30 miles offshore. So, you know, we can't go very fast when the waves were that big. And the only time that we could actually search for them was when we were lifted up onto the crest of the, of the wave and once we got into open ocean, the waves were still about 30 feet. So if you could imagine just like getting down into the into the trough of the wave and you can't see anything except for just a big black wall of water. And then once you got lifted back up, you could kind of like move your head around and look and see if you can find these find these guys. And um, I started getting really seasick. <laughs> really, really seasick. And there's only a crew of two. Um, that we set up the tow for and then they have the engineer and uh, the coxswain. So we finally find these guys and um, we had to set up the tow and everything. And my job was to pull out a thousand feet of double braided nylon tow line that's already been like drenched in water. So it's super heavy. So I'm like pulling it off this reel. The other guy's laying it out on the deck and I am just like throwing up and pulling this thing out and throwing up and pulling this thing. It was just completely miserable. Oh my gosh, it was terrible. You save someone, but you, you, when you're pulling them up, you start throwing up on them. Like, I'm sorry, but I'm just so I'm seasick. so sorry. Yeah. yeah, I know. Well, in those conditions, like you barely see the people, but like this guy, he, I swear to God, he looked like Captain Ahab, like from what I could see. And he was straddling the front of his sailboat and he's like getting tossed in these waves and he's like, yeah, like oh, <laughs> through the wind. And we're just like, oh my God, this guy's freaking insane. And, uh, so we throw the heaving line over to him. We set up the tow and everything. And then um, on the way back, um, we could only go, you know, it took us about three or four hours to even find him. Um, and then, of course, on the way back, we can't even, we can't go as fast either because now we have a boat in tow with a thousand feet of tow line out behind us. And so we're only going like two knots maybe on the way home. And um, altogether, the case took about 11 hours. And the whole time, I'm just like up on the open bridge, which is about 30 feet. And I'm holding on to this railing. And my legs are like hanging off the edge of the open bridge. And every time we get knocked over, my face was getting dragged in the ocean <laughs> from 30 feet in the air. <laughs> so... So every time my head got dunked into the water, it was just like, Whoa, uh, it was so miserable. 
And unfortunately, my um, other crew member, he was also a sympathetic puker. So he was getting sick, seeing me getting sick. And then it was just a mess. So we're, it's like sunrise is peeking through the horizon. And they're like, uh, you know, sorry, guys, but the waves are too big to cross the river bar. Uh, you're going to have to stay out there. And at that point, like we both were just, my hair looked like a bird's nest of just, just complete disaster. And we're just feeling so horrible. And um, they were going to send out another boat to come switch out the crew because we were obviously kind of incapacitated at that point and been out there for 11 hours and it was sunrise. So I hadn't slept in 24 hours or so. <laughs> and um, then when the boat was coming out to come get us, they're like, oh, guys, we have an exhaust leak in our engine room. We can't come get you. And then they turned around and went away. <laughs> Yeah. You're like, pretty you awesome. fucking kidding me. This is the worst day ever. <laughs> it was the worst. And at that point, um, you know, I was really thinking it'd be really nice to be that helicopter pilot who could just come out here in 30 minutes, do his job and go home. Yeah. Stay warm. <laughs> yeah. I know it's not really like aviation oriented, but that was definitely a time that I was thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> that was miserable. Looking back on your whole Coast Guard experience, do you have any regrets of joining the Coast Guard or are you glad that you did it? Like, not necessarily you do it again, but you are glad and thankful for, for the memories and kind of who it made you become. Uh, no, no regrets at all. Uh, my experience was, was amazing. It you know, made me who I am. Um, I definitely think that um, my experience in... Yeah, I mean, it made me grow up a lot. Obviously, I was 17 when I joined. And so I was in there for my early 20s. And I'm grateful that I experienced the things that I did um, in my early 20s. It really kind of set the stage for me to have a good work ethic. Also to pay for all of my flight school. <laughs> so definitely no regrets there. I got all of my helicopter ratings and I got most of my airplane ratings paid for through the GI Bill. Um, so definitely no regrets there. Uh, my work working with illegal immigration was a huge uh, eye-opener and um, an amazing experience to have worked during the time where um, wet foot, dry foot with Cuba was still a law in effect. And um, very, very interesting time to be working that type of job. Well, hey, let's take a break real quick and then we'll get right back into it. All right. Welcome back, Diane. That was some, I mean, that was pretty cool. I've always liked the Coast Guard. If I ever joined the military, I always told myself I'd be the Coast Guard for similar reasons, just like missions like that I believe in. And I did watch the movie with Ashton Kutcher and I thought that was really cool. And I wanted to go swim and save people's lives, which is really lame. I know, but I thought it was cool. But this is the Pilot the Pilot podcast and we are supposed to talk about aviation eventually. So why not 45 minutes into the podcast? Uh, you, you transition out of, uh, the coast guard. Are you immediately going to a flight school to get your GI bill to go play for your pay for your ratings? Or was it kind of a waiting period and you didn't really know what you wanted to do? Uh, it was about a year, um, in between the time I got out to the time I went to flight school. Um, I immediately after I got out, I ended up working on the owner of the New Orleans Saints private yacht down in West Palm beach. The Benson's? Um, Yep, the Bensons. Yep. Is it Tom Benson? Benson? Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. I, I worked for Mr. Benson. Uh, yeah, really interesting. He he couldn't wrap his head around the fact that I was a mechanic and not a maid. Really? Uh, oh, that's awesome. kind of a, 
<laughs> like it's not 1910 anymore, so, man. I'm why is that young lady not changing my bed sheets? I'm like, Mr. Benson, you're not going to see me. I'm down in the engine room. Um, yeah, so I digress. Uh, did that and um, I worked for, I, I went to South Africa for a little bit, did some traveling for about three months um, over there. And when I came back, uh, I ended up getting a job working for a ship contracting company up in York, Maine, um, a company that I ended up meeting when I was in the Coast Guard, who told me if I ever needed mechanic work that you know I always had a job there. So I ended up doing that, uh, working in dry docks on big cargo ships for like, um, I don't know, maybe four months, um, which was miserable work, but I made a lot of money doing that. Um, and when I got done with that, I was really thinking like, okay, I need to figure out exactly what I want to do with my life because I can't do this forever. Mad props to blue collar workers who can work in dry docks for a 30 year career. It's a really, really tough work. Um, so once, once I figured that out, I was like, okay, I know I want to go to flight school, but like at the time I wanted to go airplanes. So I was kind of trying to figure out how I was going to do that. And my friend was like, oh, let's go to Southeast Asia for a little bit. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that instead. <laughs> so I, I went and traveled Southeast Asia for about four months. Um, did the whole Thailand, Cambodia, Bali, blah, blah, blah um, thing, which was amazing. Um, but when I came back, I was like, okay, now I don't have any more money and I definitely need to go to school. I need to figure out what I'm going to do. Because uh, with the GI Bill, they also pay for your living expenses. So um, that's when I was starting to do my research about Embry-Riddle and uh, found out that the GI Bill wouldn't cover fixed-wing school, but they told me that the GI Bill would cover helicopter school. So, yep. And so I contacted the school that they contracted, uh, Universal Helicopters in Prescott, Arizona. And kind of got in contact with them and it had turned out sure enough, the GI bill was going to cover everything from my living expenses to flight school all the way up through um, flight instructor instrument. That's insane because as most people know, helicopters are probably double the price of everything. Yeah. Well, I ended up not going through Riddle. I went through another online program um, that was based in Kansas, it was a college that was kind of going under and they needed kind of a saving grace type of a program. So Universal approached them with, you know, the idea of, well, hey, if you have start an aviation program, we, we bet you, you know, a lot of GI Bill students will go through your university and the VA is going to pay for it. So that, that's what I ended up doing, just an online program. Uh, I wanted to focus 100% on flight school and not necessarily the getting a degree part. Like I was going to get a, an associate's out of this no matter what. Um, but I, I didn't necessarily feel like I needed to go to Riddle to go to to, to go to school. It was it was a kind of a weird thing. Um, the GI Bill is a very difficult thing to understand, and there's not a lot of resources out there to really explain it very well. Um, so as it were something was weird with the GI Bill and Embry-Riddle. So I ended up like, oh, I, don't, I don't even want to deal with that mess. I don't want to pay for anything out of pocket. And I just want to get this paid for and go to school and get get my certificates. So that's what I did. Um, it was a two-year program, online program. I got an associate's in applied science of flight. And I got all of my ratings, including um, a turbine transition course. I got like 14 hours in a Bell 206. 
and an NVG course. I got six hours under um, NVG goggles, which was a really, really awesome course as well, um, which was all paid for and covered and ended up being um, college credits, like counting towards college credits. So that was pretty cool. Did you care at all? Because before you mentioned that you're more interested, or maybe not interested, but you were, you were leaning more towards fixed wing and airplanes. But the GI Bill said, no, we only do helicopters, which I know the other GI Bill, which I don't know. I don't know anything about GI Bills, so I'm not going to get into that. But were you <laughs> upset? The last couple of years. Uh, were you upset at all that you couldn't get the fixed wings and you went into helicopters? Or were you like, eh, that's fine, whatever, let's just go? No, it was kind of like, that's fine, let's go. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So you just kind of go with the flow, I, like you'll figure it out. Yeah, I, I went with the flow and... I'm really glad that I did because I honestly, at heart, I am a helicopter girl. And once I really started looking into the missions that helicopters do, what type of jobs I could have as a helicopter pilot versus an airplane pilot, it was kind of just more up my alley anyways. And I also really did love helicopters just from working with them. So I, I was like, oh, okay, well, um, that's cool. <laughs> Let's go helicopters. And I was, I was part of the big percentage of people who believe that you have to go to fixed wing school before you can become a helicopter pilot. That's a question that I get all the time. They're like, oh, okay, so you were an airplane pilot first and then you went into helicopters. Um, I think I still, I think I had that mindset as well. I was like, oh, like you can't fly a helicopter until you learn how to fly an airplane first. So I think I did have that mentality as well. And then when I found out I could just go straight into helicopters, it was a big light bulb, you know, and oh, okay. Um, and just rolled with it, which I actually thought that I had to fly a flight simulator first. I got to flight school. I didn't know anything about it. Like I did some research, but I showed up and um, I'm like, okay, well, where's the flight simulator? They're like, uh, you're going to go fly right now. And you know, my head just exploded. <laughs> yeah. What? Like, you're going to let me fly that? Do you know me? <laughs> you're going to let me fly? Yeah, like, yeah let's go. But, That's um, awesome. Um, if you could give anyone any tips, uh, just like very quick tips or recommendations for dealing with GI bills, is there is there anything out there to deal with it, or is it still just a mess? Is it just like whatever. If you can figure out, good luck. Yeah, it's kind of a mess. Um, I've been meaning actually to make a good like instructional video about it, but it has changed a lot because a lot of flight schools really took advantage of the GI bill. Um, not in good ways and kind of ruined it for a lot of people. Um, and a lot of flight schools got their VA benefits taken away from them because of said bad behavior, like getting people their private licenses in a bell, <laughs> which is like $1,200 an hour versus, you know, 22, like 300 an hour. Students love um, it. They're like, whoa, this is awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say if you're going to use the GI Bill, go through a, pro, a, a college program like a university program and use the post 9-11 GI Bill and get your associate's degree along with your flight ratings. Because one, you're already killing two birds with one stone at that in that case, because your flight ratings count as college credits. So when you get your private, that's three college credits. You get your instrument, that's three college credits. Um, so at least you're working towards something. Um, so if you can, and you also get more bang for your buck because if you do it um, in a way where you're paying for it vocationally, they only give you like a couple thousand dollars a month and it ends up not being enough to cover everything. But if you go through an accredited university, I know Southern Utah University, um, I think 
North Dakota. There's a school in North Dakota, I believe, that is a an accredited university program. And uh, I'm trying to think of there's a third one that I knew of. I, I can't recall right now, but um, but yeah, that that would be probably my biggest advice is don't go to a Part 61 school and pay for it vocationally. Go through an accredited university. You'll get more, you'll get more out of it. What was your helicopter? What was your helicopter training like? Um, I know you, earlier you mentioned that school just really wasn't for you, but obviously, training in that kind of environment around airplanes is more hands-on. It's less in a classroom. I mean, I'm sure there are some classroom moments, but was it easier for you to kind of get around or to to kind of get your mind around studying then, or uh, just the one-on-one mentality? Was that better for you? Yeah, and you know, I um, like I mentioned, I didn't do too well in like a classroom environment with like people I just didn't enjoy being around and um, where a teacher was just reading out of a book. So flight school and, but I enjoyed homeschooling myself and I do really well when I have a book in front of me and I get to like go through it and learn at my own pace and um, use resources that I can find online, et cetera. So um, I, I was super focused in flight school because I also really enjoyed the subject matter, right? I, I loved learning everything that I was learning. So I just wanted it. I wanted it really badly and I wanted to know everything. So at some, some days I would lock myself at Embry-Riddle's um, library. They had these private study rooms and I would just um, steal one for the day and you know sit there for 10 hours with a whiteboard and just brain dump all day long, different subject matters, uh, which seems a little excessive. I know. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. Do what works for you. Do what you got to do. And... Um, you know, I had my methods. And so I definitely, I enjoyed going to flight school and, and I did work my butt off while I was going to, to flight school as well. So when you are training uh, in that, when you are doing your training, what, I guess in your training, what was your goal for being a helicopter pilot? Was it to go do something similar, like go help people, go save lives, humanitarian type thing? Or was it, uh, well, it'd be cool if I could fly for a, Tom Benson, not necessarily him, but someone with the money to have their own helicopter. Is that what was your goal when you were in training? Uh, when I was entering, I wanted mountain rescue. Uh, I knew I, I wanted to, I wanted to use that skill to do something to help people. Um, one hundred percent. That was kind of why I wanted to go to flight school as well. Um, just from where the inspiration came from. Also, like from being in the Coast Guard and seeing what they could do and um, how useful they were. and But I wanted to use my my skills for good. So I wanted mountain rescue. As time has gone on, um, I guess to do that type of work, you need to go into utility and get long line time, maybe sling buckets on fires for a couple summers and then get into precision utility before you can get into something like that, which just so happened hasn't been the path that I'm that I'm currently on right now. Um, who knows, maybe in the future, but I, I think as my career progressed and you start seeing the lifestyles of certain jobs um, during the time periods where I could go that route, um, my lifestyle just didn't really accommodate that type of um, like being gone for long periods of time. Um now things have changed so i'm not i'm not sure if i'm going to continue going in that direction i you know right now i'm flying organ transplants here in la uh, which is still a great mission 
it, it's charter, you know, it's not long line going up into the mountains and, and saving people. I was actually supposed to be in Alaska this summer. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to get the mountain flying experience time, kind of building slowly maybe towards my original goal, um, at least getting the mountain time, getting the weather experience and that, that skill under my belt. But then COVID hit and that job fell through. Um, and luckily, my job was still here uh, when that happened. So, and I got to keep my apartment. Thank gosh. <laughs> that helps. Good job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I think once you're in the industry and you start seeing, because you don't know what these jobs are actually like until you've been in for a while and you know people who have done them or you've done them yourself, and you realize, oh, okay, I thought that this is what I wanted, but it, actually, it's really not. And it's a change your mind. Um, I mean, you, you obviously don't want to be one of those pilots that goes and gets hired a bunch of different places and quits the next month. You know, that kind of, it's a small industry, that kind of stuff gets around for sure. A couple of people who already have like reputations for doing that. Um, so you definitely don't want to be that type of a type of a person in the industry. But um, I would say it doesn't hurt to change your mind once you're in. Yeah. I mean, you don't you know. know what you like until you try it, right? It's like, you have no idea if you're really going to like doing this kind of flying. And there. I would always recommend, I know if I think someone else said this, it's like, if you, if you take a job, it's usually good to always give them one year. Uh, one year is kind of a respected amount of time and you're not really going to get that reputation of you bouncing around a lot just because people understand that certain jobs are not for everyone. Right. So, and you also don't know unless you try it. So you need to try certain things before you figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your career. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've had friends who, you know, they went and flew in the Gulf of Mexico for oil and gas and literally after two weeks they're like oh my gosh i can't do this anymore this is awful and you know left the job but also because of maybe safety concerns or that's um, different obviously if you don't feel safe then you don't feel safe (laughs) have no problem leaving a company if you feel unsafe with the way that they operate um that's not going to hurt you in the long run for sure What's uh, everyone knows for a fixed wing pilot or not everyone, but most people, their dream is to become a major airline pilot. That's the money. That's where everyone kind of wants to go. That's where the career has kind of progressed throughout the time that we've all been flying. It's just like you kind of work your way up to be an airline pilot and that's the creme de la crop. Like you made it, you're there. What does that look like for helicopters? Is there a certain job that is the most sought after job that gets paid the most, you have the most time off, or is it kind of hit or miss between different industries and different types of helicopter flying? I think that's one of the major differences between helicopters and airplane um, career routes. Like fixed wings, uh, fixed wing careers are very um, linear. You kind of see where you're going. Helicopters, I think we have a lot more uh I guess, variety and missions and people bounce around more so unless, unless you get into helicopters and you know exactly what you want to do. Like I want to do firefighting and I want to work on, you know, I want to work for LA County fire or, you know, one of those organizations that are very difficult to get into that take an entire career, um, 20 plus years of flying to get. Because those guys, once they get into those jobs, they never leave them <laughs> forever. <laughs> so those jobs are kind of few, far in between. So it really just depends on on what the pilot wants to do. A lot of people really want to go into utility, and that that's you know once they get to the crown de la creme utility jobs, where they're like, okay, yeah, I get to work for six months, and then I have six months off. 
And then I get to do other stuff, whatever I want to do. Some people really love that lifestyle. Um, and then some people's goal is to just do corporate. They're like, yeah, I want to work for a family. Um, and then once they get there, that's the creme de la crop. You know, it just depends, really just depends on the pilot and the career path that they want in helicopters. So it's not as linear, I think, as like the airline route with with um, airplane fixed wing. And from what I remember talking in our AOPA live stream, your kind of career hasn't been very linear either. You have also gotten your fixed wing ratings, correct? Mm-hmm. And you yeah. for a moment thought about going airlines in that route, right? I did. Um, well, full disclosure, yeah, 2018 um, was kind of a bad year for helicopters. Uh, there was an accident in the Grand Canyon that a friend of mine was involved in where he got severely injured and um, there were fatalities on board. And about a month later, the company that I was flying for had a fatal crash in New York as well um, within a couple of months of each other. So for me, um, it was it was the first time in in the in my career that I dealt with something that was that close to home. You obviously hear about uh, crashes happening all the time in the industry, but nothing where I knew the pilot or um, knew the situation really, um, where it was that close to me. And because of the accident that happened in New York, I ended up losing my job in Vegas because the company was going through, you know, dealing with that. And I was kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do um, with my career once I lost that job. And I, I was thinking, I was very, I guess, I took my time with trying to figure out if I really wanted to continue with helicopters or if I wanted to go into fixed wing. Because at the time, also the airlines were really struggling for pilots and the money was very tempting. <laughs> um, they were offering a lot of uh, sign-on bonuses with different regional airlines and um, that you can definitely make a lot more money in the airlines than you can in helicopters in the long run, for sure. And you know, the track to captain went from 20 years, what, to like 10, 15 years for a major airline because of the pilot shortage. So I was kind of looking at that and safety-wise, I, I was kind of toying with the idea and I decided I was going to um, get my fixed wing ratings um, because I, I could also, I had my the GI bill still, um, and uh, flew for a private owner his helicopter just a, once or twice a month to keep my feet wet in helicopters and make sure that my skills stayed up to date. And um, so I was really fortunate that a friend of mine was his primary pilot, and once in a while they needed me to come in and fly. So um, it really worked out in that sense where I could still fly helicopter. It was a really nice. Um, AS350 B3E, like like brand new. This thing had 300 hours on it when I started flying it. Um, full autopilot and everything. So uh, I started doing all my fixed wing stuff and I ended up getting hired by SkyWest. I went and did the interview and everything. Oh, well, um, had a start you date. Took it that far. Jeez. I did take I took it that far. I, I went to Salt Lake. I did the interview. I got the job offer. I had a start date for my training. And uh, when my friend called me about the job here in LA, um, where it was a twin engine job, um, flying the organ transplants. Um, I didn't necessarily want to move to LA or come back to LA. I used to flight instruct out on Long Beach when I first started out. And um, I don't particularly like this city. <laughs> it's not my favorite. Um, so I was kind of back and forth with it. 
and just kind of realized that the airlines wasn't really where my heart was. And I really wanted to use this skill to help people. And I had this opportunity. I'm like, okay, I got two engines now and it's flying charter. And it's kind of been helping me, um, I guess, re refine the passion for like why I started it to begin with, right? I'm like, I, I don't really want to fly an, you know, a big airplane where I'm just taking people from point A to point B, which is obviously like really heroic work because you're getting people there safely. <laughs> um, but I did have this opportunity where someone's like, hey, you can use your helicopter gifts for good. And this is on paper, a very safe job. You have two engines and you know it's charter work. You're going from hospital to hospital or airport to hospital. You're not landing in a you know, middle of a road somewhere where you don't know where the power lines are in the middle of the night for an accident or anything like that. Um, so for me, it was a great way to, I guess, reaffirm my um, desire to continue with helicopters after all the accidents had happened. And um, now that I've been doing it for a while, like it's all, it's full blast. The passion's back. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just uh, really love helicopters and the missions that they do. And, um, yeah, no, it's just, it's been a great couple of years now. When you're doing your training, fixed wing training, so when you're going through just kind of that feeling of helicopters, it's made you uneasy, you know, not necessarily the safe, didn't have the safest feeling in the helicopter. When you went to fixed wing training, were you in love with it? Like you were helicopters? Did you know right away? You're like, well, this isn't really what I love, but you know, this is just going to be better for me. Did you kind of like lie to yourself a little bit uh, when you're going through your training or did you like it just as much as helicopters? Uh, I definitely didn't like it as much as helicopters. I was kind of bored, honestly. Um, and just like my personality trait, like, um, I don't know. I When I was going through fixed wing, it was kind of just like I was coasting through it. Like, yeah, this is just what I'm doing now. Kind of a thing. I didn't really feel that passion for it until I started flying tailwheels <laughs> once in a while. Uh, I really enjoy flying tailwheels now, but... Um, yeah, I, I didn't. And I think that's why I was also really hesitant once I got the job with SkyWest to continue with that route. Because one, I didn't want to waste their time and their money and their efforts to train me and then decide in the middle of training that it wasn't for me. Um, at least at least for now, you know, at, at the time and for now. Um, who knows later on, you know, as I get older, maybe, but I don't know. Um, but definitely going through fixed wing training, it wasn't like, there wasn't a light bulb that went off that told me that I was on the right path. It was kind of just coasting through it. And it wasn't that I felt unsafe in helicopters. It was just, uh, I think it was just a little bit of a shock to have to deal with the first time that a friend of mine had, you know, fatalities and seeing everything that he was going through in regards to, you know, the passengers, families and the, um, you know, getting sued and just kind of like the liability that we as pilots take on is just a lot, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, unsafe is probably the, the wrong word for me to use. I just kind of think of a better word at the time. But yeah, it's kind of like the uneasiness of being in the in the helicopter and what all you kind of are doing at that time, I guess, right? Yeah, I think it was just, um, well, the company that I was flying for that had the fatality, they, they did not... Um, it wasn't great. They were, they were doing this these doors off flights where people were being harnessed into the helicopter. 
I think I know what, like, what accident this was. Actually, I think okay. I remember this one. Right. And, you know, the way that they ran things and, and everything, it was just, it was so bad. And um, I definitely did not believe that what we were doing was safe. And um, we, as pilots, there, there was a whistleblower um, that sent some some emails out. So this is all public um, knowledge, but um, that people were raising concerns via email to the company. And basically, they were just saying, you know, tough luck. This is what we're doing. Just deal with it. Um, and that kind of kind of came out. So made me lose a little faith in like some companies, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like leadership, I guess. Um, but I digress. So yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I wouldn't say I, I don't want to put the notion out there that helicopters are unsafe. I think just for my for my experience at the time, it was just two very back-to-back accidents that were close to home that kind of just made me take a step back and have to reassess. But eventually, you know, came back around. How do you as a pilot, when you're flying for a company like that, when maybe you see things you don't agree with or you see things or just values and morals that just aren't aligning with what you believe in or how you would want to operate or just the overall feeling safety? Because I mean, when we sign off for an airplane, when you are the PIC, when you are flying a plane, even it's SIC, it's your job to take care of the people in the back. Like we're there for safety. We're there to make sure everyone has a fun time and comes back and is alive. Like, but how do you go to work knowing and kind of having those doubts? Like, I don't really trust this company. I don't really believe this in this company. Like, did that really toy with you at all when you were, uh, when you're flying for them? Yeah. So originally, um, I had ended up, I, I left. So I originally, when I became a flight instructor, I worked for the comp- company that I went to flight school with. And I did not agree with the way that they ran their ship there either. And I ended up quitting um, because they they led with fear. And it created an environment that was not just culture, right? I don't know. Do you know, you know just, just culture? Like makes it an environment where people are feel comfortable with bringing up safety issues without any... Um, I guess fear of retaliation from the company, where the company is putting it out there, like, look, this is just culture. Like, if you guys did something wrong, something messed up, you dinged a helicopter on the side of a hangar. Don't feel afraid to come to us and and tell us. It was more like you'd get to work, and the first hour meeting was you could get fired this way, you could get fired that way. You do this, you're fired. You do that, you're fired. And you know, it was kind of like walking on eggshells every time you walked into the place. And uh, which I did not agree with that type of leadership, right? Because again, I think it creates an unsafe working environment where people are afraid to speak up when something happens. So in that instance, I just, I left. And um, in the instance with the company I was working for uh, recently, I guess back in 2018, it was more so I saw the safety issue and I did my very best at the time to make sure that I did everything I could to make sure that the passengers were safe and understood um, every, everything that was going on. So like, for example, like the, the tethers um, were like a rope, like a circular rope, but the cutters that they had on the harnesses were for seatbelts. 
So they were on the safety video, they were showing a different style tether that was like a flat seatbelt type where you could just slice right through it with these seatbelt cutters for egress. And so I think New York was a little bit of a bigger operation. They were kind of just throwing people into a room and showing them the safety video. I was out in Vegas trying to help them start at the company out there. And I had more one-on-one contact with the passengers, I guess, because I was giving the safety briefing. I wasn't just showing them the video. So I could show them, okay, guys, look, this cutter is not going to slice through that tether. If you want to get out, you have to cut your harness at these four points. Do you guys understand? And then you'd have them take out the cutter and maybe demonstrate like, okay, if I need to get out, this is what I have to do. And just make sure that they fully understood what I was saying, right? Like you don't you don't just take off your seatbelt. You got to cut your freaking harness. <laughs> yeah, it's like you understand, right? <laughs> like you understand, right? And you know, I mean, and it, this was actually kind of a um, a regret that I had um, a little bit because looking back on it, I'm like, you know what? I should have just um, once I realized that the cutters and the and the tethers weren't going to fit, and they and we brought it up to the company as well, and they ended up ordering new new style equipment. But they continued to operate as is, which for me, I, I feel was very negligent. Um, which, you know, I ended up leaving while they were going through all the lawsuits and everything after the accident and went back home and they asked me to come back and fly one of these flights. And I had to tell them, no, it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do this until the FAA figures it out, right? Like, we're, we're not going to continue to fly these flights after we just had a fatal accident. <laughs> like, I shouldn't have to tell you guys that. And then they ended up banning the harnesses pretty shortly thereafter until they um, came up with a, a system that the FAA deemed to be safe, where they had like a quick release. Um, and also flying different style helicopters to accommodate the what they were doing. But um, there was definitely some like something inside of me that was like, yo, this isn't right. And shouldn't be doing this. It's tough um, when you're in that spot though. Because I mean, like one, you kind of feel like you need to like they always kind of say, well, this person flies, you know, there's kind of like that, that culture that you're talking about where they make you feel like you're kind of the bad one for raising the concerns. You're the one that's like, you know, no one else is bringing, I mean, other, other people were, but it's like, everything's fine. We've never had an accident. Like everything's gonna be okay. You know, but it's like, well, this still isn't right. And it's really tough to kind of put your foot down and, and leave when other people are still flying and nothing has happened, but you obviously took every safety precaution that you could and you made sure people understood, but eventually you, you just had to walk away. Yeah, you just have to walk away. I mean, even like the day, like we had just had the accident. So the the day of, um, and um, I had a flight that day. And I was literally about to walk out to the helicopter with a couple of passengers. And they were like, we just had an accident. And I'm like, oh, like where? Like, oh, New York. Okay. Um, Like, is everybody okay? They're like, oh, we don't know yet. I'm like, okay. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm I'm not gonna go on this flight. Like, I, I don't know if it's somebody that I know or like what happened or you know. And then they came back and they said, oh, it was an engine failure and um there were fatalities. And I'm like, okay, well, obviously safety stand down. Like, let's all like figure out what happened first. Um, and they asked me to to go fly the flight. And I'm like, what? Like, no. <laughs> Like, Why am I saying we, no right now? Yeah. Like, we had a fatal, like we literally in the last 10 minutes just had a fatal crash and you want me to go fly one of these flights. And 
they're like, okay. And then the chief pilot ended up just going and taking them. And their argument was, oh, well, there's no water in Las Vegas, so you should be fine. And, and I'm like, well, that, that's a piss poor argument because my friend was just in an accident in the Grand Canyon where they didn't have crash proof fuel tanks, which we did not either. And I'm like, so you're going to give our passengers zero ways to get out, like out of the helicopter in the event of a fire. Like, no, <laughs> like we obviously need to have a safety stand down. And um, it was just one of those things where I had to say like, look, I'm not mentally prepared to take a flight right now after our company just had a fatal crash. You know, it's just not there. You made the right call um, for they, sure. 100%. Yeah. But, you know, the the chief pilot at the time did take the flight. You know, he he ran off and and went and did it because the our... um. In Vegas, the company was kind of suffering, so we didn't have a lot of flights. So I, I think he felt an obligation to at least get something in the air um, so that we could keep that revenue. But, you know, that's just... It was kind of ridiculous to me that that they would have even asked us to continue flying the same day without a safety stand down to figure out what happened. Yeah, that is crazy. Especially when like you could have known someone like you, who what, you're not going to be mentally ready in any kind of capacity. You know, your, your idea or your mind is going to be thinking about so many other things than, than what you need to be thinking of, you know? Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, I have one yeah. more question about oh, yeah. kind of flying and stuff. And then we'll do a quick rapid fire section. I know this is going longer than you probably thought, but it's been a great conversation. <laughs> I, I love it's talking okay. with you about this. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, my one question is before the rapid fire, you went to SkyWest. You kind of 2018, 2019, aviation was great. Airlines are great. Money was everywhere. You were going to be a captain on a 717 for Delta in five years. Like life is good. Uh, how hard was it for you to turn down? Because you see that linear path that leads to to captain money, that leads to you can go travel for free in Southeast Asia, to Australia, whenever you want. You know, like how hard was it for you to turn down everything that comes with being an airline pilot for probably making less money. And like you said, moving to a city you didn't really enjoy. Man, you're making me really regret my decision. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can caveat that with a lot of people, you would be furloughed and you would not have a job right now. Yeah, I wouldn't have a job right now if I continued on that route. Um, I would have gone through all my training and then not had a job and probably would have ended up exactly where I am at right now. The good news is I don't um, think SkyWest actually furloughed. So you might still have a job. It just might not be looking great. Yeah. So, um, it, I mean, it was definitely uh, something that I, that I struggled with. That I struggled with that decision. Blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry. <laughs> struggled with that decision uh, quite a bit. Uh, I was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I'm like, oh, but the, but the pay and the benefits and the you know, the travel benefits. Oh my gosh. Like at at Papillon, I had travel benefits and I could fly pretty much with anybody and skip all of the lines and everything. And after having to travel like a normal human being (laughs) after that, it was like, oh, it was horrible. Um, I was like, oh, that looks, that's really freaking tempting. Um, But my heart just wasn't in it. And you know what? It's not about the money. It's about um, your own happiness. And I honestly did not believe that I would be happy in that lifestyle. And going going to be a first off or a um yeah, first officer um for a regional airline would actually be about a 50% pay cut from what I'm making right now. 
Um, so it was like, okay, I could sacrifice a couple of years for the greater good of making money, more money down the line. But right now I could go to LA and make this, make twice as much money right off the bat. But with not much of a, um, I guess, uh, opportunity to make more within the company. Like, yeah, maybe like a little more picking up overtime and having to work more, but not like a ton more, you know, not like the airlines where, you know, you can have a trajectory where you're making 300 plus and working what, like 10 days a month. <laughs> it can be pretty good in the airlines. I mean, uh, there's no, yeah. it's definitely for sure. I know. And you know, I, I toy with it still sometimes and I'm like, well, like, could it, it could still be pretty good, but at the I, end of the I day, if your heart's not in it and you're not happy, I mean, you could probably make it work, but doing a work that fulfills you will make you happier in the long run than most money. I will say that if you can make a lot of money, then maybe it's worth it. <laughs> but it's me personally. Yeah. But I mean, there's definitely a, a point where your happiness and what the mission that you're doing it outweighs maybe some wages. I think there's a limit to that, like I said. But uh, I mean, I mm-hmm. think you made the right choice. You got to follow your heart. You just absolutely have to. Yeah. And, you know, doing the organ transplant stuff has been very fulfilling. Um I mentioned in one of my podcasts that uh, one of the patients that I ended up delivering lungs to, the guy who raised him actually found me on TikTok just randomly and was like, what are the chances that you delivered a set of lungs to UCLA on this date? I'm like, oh, like... Hold on, let me just make sure I'm not violating any HIPAA laws here. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but, don't do that. you know, probably probably pretty high, you know, and it, it had turned out that I had delivered this kid's lungs to him. Wow. So I ended up getting to follow him on social media and have been able to track his progress and see how things are going with him, um, which has been really rewarding being able to see, I guess, like the the outcome of what we actually do. And so that was that was very rewarding. That was one of those moments where um, I got to really feel um, like I was doing something really important. Um, and uh, I, I've had the ability to go into the operating room as well um, when they were doing the recovery surgeries. And so that that was very eye-opening. We we were taking off with a heart and this kid's family was standing on the top of the parking deck across from where the helipad was. And they had signs and they were waving us off and they were cheering as we were taking off um, with their loved one's heart. <laughs> and, you know, as we're taking off, I'm like, oh my God, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, you just really start feeling the the weight of the importance of what we're doing. And, you know, and it is sad that it's, it's one of those, I don't know, I guess, um, it's sad that somebody has to lose their life in order for another one to be saved. But just mo- the marvel of modern medicine and, and what we are able to do now is just incredible. It's so incredible. And the people who are the donors are just absolute heroes um, and angels for for signing up for that program. But uh, so, yeah, no no regrets in, in the direction that I ended up taking my career. I love general aviation. I love going out there and flying tailwheels in Santa Paula once in a while with Mark King over there at CP Aviation and kind of getting my fix um, that way as well. So you know, I'm really enjoying kind of just 
finding different ways to not only fly the job that I am right now, but kind of just in my own time, also just flying other things, right? Just in in GA and um, kind of experiencing different facets of of aviation in general and doing all the stuff I'm doing on social media and like really trying to inspire younger generations to get involved with aviation. And that's kind of become a new passion as well. So um, I have no regrets with, with the money. I think that the money will come when it's needed and um, eventually I'll, I'll figure out another way to make it. You know, <laughs> There you go. You're TikTok famous, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, perfect. I have some rapid fire questions for you. Like I said, I know this is going longer than my my average podcast, but uh, this will be really quick. So this is just going to be, you're going to say no explanation whatsoever. You just say the first thing that comes to mind and they're all aviation related. All right. Okay. All right. What is your favorite airplane? This could be any airplane in the whole world that has ever been made. If you have one that you think it just looks cool or is awesome or you've always wanted to fly, what would it be? Oh my gosh. I guess a pits. I don't know. I don't know a lot about airplanes, honestly. But oh, that's fine. I'm going to ask you a helicopter next. So, what's your favorite helicopter? Oh, AS350, hands what's your, down. What's your least favorite helicopter? R22. What's your least favorite airplane? If you have one. Uh, I mean, I don't really have one. Okay, mm-hmm. that's fair enough. What's the? This is a question I ask for airplanes. I always ask, "What's the ugliest airplane you've ever seen?" But what is the ugliest helicopter you've ever seen? Um. Probably, uh, uh, I don't know. Big crane ones are kind of ugly, but they're kind of cool at the same time. No, but they're cool. I love sky cranes. I think that they look like big praying mantises and I just freaking love them. (laughs) (laughs) I would say they're ugly. Uh, maybe like a Enstrom. I don't really like the way that they look. All right. Uh, what is something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? Hmm how little money I'd be making in the first five years. <laughs> Preach. <laughs> Preach. Uh, who, sure. Who's one person in the industry you would like to meet most? That, oh, I've already met him. Aaron Fitzgerald. <laughs> we hung out yesterday, actually. Oh, nice. That's awesome. What's your favorite yeah. thing about aviation? Uh, the camaraderie. What's your favorite airport to land at? Ooh, Catalina, probably. Least favorite airport. Or Sedona. Uh, least favorite airport. <laughs> Bermuda Dunes. <laughs> <laughs> Smart. I love it. What is, let's see, what's your favorite place you've taken a helicopter? So obviously you can land a lot of places you can't with a, with a, a helicopter. So what's one of your favorite places you ever landed with a helicopter? That I've ever landed with a helicopter. Um, or hovered. I don't know. That's a thing too. <laughs> I don't speak helicopter jargon too well. Yeah. I mean, I think the Grand Canyon was pretty epic. I mean, eventually yeah. it got, you know, a little tiresome, but yeah, epic. What's your least favorite place you've had to land a helicopter? Least favorite place. Yeah. Honestly, I think Bermuda Dunes was freaking awful just because of like the blowing dust and yeah, it was. Would you rather fly IFR or VFR? Not VFR. Favorite airport food. So let's say you are flying on a 737, you got a 30 minute connection. You need to go get some food in an airport. What's your go-to food? Cinnabon. There you go. <laughs> I like that. Uh, what is, let's see, what's next? Oh, uh, would you rather fly on a Airbus or a Boeing? If you care. Uh, Airbus. Because of the helicopter, Airbus. Airbus helicopters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, cities? Honestly, I have no idea. I, I figured that a lot of these are tailored toward, as I'm asking them, like, she might not really care, but <laughs> <laughs> this one you might care about. Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or cities? Mountains. Longer trips or shorter trips? And I mean, like, as long as you can possibly fly in a helicopter to where it's really uncomfortable or as many short trips you could possibly do in a day? Short trips. What is the hardest check ride you've ever had? Mm, probably my instrument for helicopter. Favorite aviation book? Favorite aviation, like for learning or just for Just for aviation fun? in general. For aviation, uh, everything explained. Yeah, that's a good one. I do love that book. He's from Charlotte, mm-hmm. North Carolina. Shout out to all the North Carolina oh. peeps out there. <laughs> Represent. Yeah, I know, right? What's the biggest regret in your career so far, if you have one? Uh, biggest regret? You don't have one. That's fine too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know about regrets. I think everything that I've done so far has taught me something valuable. So no regrets. Biggest win of your career. I, I would, I would say probably the last story that I told you about the, the kid and the transplants. Would you, yeah. you could have one flight to go anywhere in the whole world. Where would it be? That is a loaded question, dude. <laughs> <laughs> my questions. Um, to go anywhere in the whole world right now. No, oh, this is going to be cheesy. Atlanta, because I really miss my family. <laughs> there you go. That's fair enough. I like that. That's good. And that's a good way to end on. So, Diane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. It was okay. a lot of fun to talk with you and, and hear your story. Uh, and dig deep into the Coast Guard and kind of get a better mentality of what that looks for. Because I'm guessing there's people out there that are interested in the Coast Guard and, and how you painted it, I think is, is really nice. And I think that they can make their own decision off that. And they have a lot more information, especially with the GI Bill and everything too. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. You got it. Thanks for having me. No problem. Thank you. AV Nation, that is a wrap of episode 150 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. I told you Diane's story was crazy. She has accomplished a lot and gone a different path than what I think I've ever recorded before. I mean, I don't think I've ever talked to anyone that's been in the Coast Guard, gone to helicopters, gone to fixed wing, thought about going to the regionals, went back to helicopters. So it is definitely an interesting story and I was glad to have her on and share it. So AV Nation, I hope you enjoyed. Like I said earlier, 2021 is the year of Patreon. So go check that out. You're not going to want to miss out there. The full video podcast should be going up on Patreon for the first time ever it's not this one it is with ryan from superhero live uh, it's gonna be a good one and i'm really excited for that so Aviation nation thank you guys so much i hope you're having a great day and as always happy flying